0: Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. I went and bought some shares. You bought those shares. They didn't work out. Slowly,
1: you work your way through. You must have rallied. You can't invest in Bitcoin. Dollar cost average. You
0: can speculate. Don't do anything rash. Take a few hits. Go and hug your family. Allow the bruises to heal. ETFs are perhaps more popular at the moment. I wouldn't touch an ETF with a barge pole. The relative instability to you is a detractor. The penny finally dropped for me. No one talks about leverage. We have better things to do. It feels like we're moving backwards.
1: That is what created the monster that I am today.
0: When you're in the personal finance space, there are some industry heavyweights that you'd love to meet one day. Today, I get to chat to one of mine, so pardon my delirious excitement. Peter Thornhill is, I think, Australia's answer to Warren Buffett and perhaps one of the earliest proponents of financial independence through the stock market. He's the author of Motivated Money and he is an investing legend. He retired at 53 with $400,000 in annual dividends and has been a personal finance educator ever since. Welcome to Big Swigging Stocks, Peter. How are you doing? Thanks,
1: Alex. I'm absolutely fine on a gorgeous morning.
0: So we know about your investing now, but I want to take you right back. Tell me a little bit about how you first got started investing.
1: Well, the first one for me wasn't, I guess it was a starting point. So late teens, I'd started work and I saved up a few shekels and I went and bought some shares. They happened to be two resource companies, South Australian Varieties and Mideast Minerals from memory. The memory I carry as well is that both of them eventually failed and I lost money. So that was my rather ignominious
0: start in
1: the investing world.
0: So a lot of people, I think, would have been put off by those kinds of losses. But tell me, how did you get back into investing?
1: Well, Alex, I wasn't actually investing, to be honest, because back then I didn't know the meaning of the word. I just thought you know, it would be good fun to buy shares and then sell them at a profit. So basically my guidance, if you like, was speculation, not investing. And, yeah, I should, for the purpose of the rest of this interview, I should, if I may, define two words. To invest, the use of money productively so that a regular income is obtained, speculation, buying and selling in an attempt to benefit from a fluctuation in the price, sometimes in an antisocial way. And it drives me nuts in the media when they are talking about investors in Bitcoin. You can't invest in Bitcoin, you can speculate, and you can speculate in so many other things, but the media insists. If someone buys something, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a piece of art, jewelry, a yacht, a house, that apparently is investing, it's not.
0: I think that sets us up really well for the rest of the episode and I thank you for giving us that definition because it's a really good foundation for the rest of our chat because I love the journey and I want to talk a little bit and explore a little bit more about it. You bought those shares, they didn't work out. You must have rallied because you're now one of Australia's biggest proponents of shares. So tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Quite the contrary. At that stage, I was as thick as two short planks, to be honest. I failed my last year at high school. So late teens, finished high school, messed about with shares, met a gorgeous woman, married her in 69, and shortly afterwards, we took off on a working holiday. We were going to have 18 months abroad, six months in the US, six months in England, six months in Europe, and then come home. We didn't come home for 18 years, and it was the best thing that ever happened to us. I've encouraged my three sons to get the hell out of here and spend time abroad because those 18 years in England totally changed the outcome of our lives. Because I suspect if I'd stayed, I'd now own two investment properties and think I was the best thing since sliced bread, but that apprenticeship overseas was pure gold. So I didn't really start investing until I was working in the financial services industry initially as a clerk. The second job was as a clerk and gradually up the ladder I went, getting more involved in the funds management companies and so on before coming back to Australia. But it was the apprenticeship there and the funny thing was that becoming the monster that I am today was a result of coming back to Australia, believe it or not. Much of what I had taken for granted in England about investing, which is for income, You are custodians of the capital. You live on the income and you pass the capital to the next generation who live on the income. They are custodians and pass it on to the next generation. I come back to Australia and I'm talking about all these wonderful companies. There aren't many mining companies in England. So I was confronted by industrial companies by and large, everything except digging stuff out of the ground. And it was that and also the history there. The beautiful thing and the one thing that I I love most, there's a listed investment company in England. It's only been around for 162 years. They have just celebrated their 55th consecutive year of dividend increases. I would like to know who has an investment that has risen, the income has risen, every year for the last 55 years. And think of all the events that have flowed under the bridge globally over the last 55 years. And here's this machine pumping out, increasing dividends every year for 55 years. So I come back with shares at top of mind. I stand up in front of an audience and say, what great thing shares are. And everyone goes, who is this guy? What does he know? Ah, oh, bloody hell, shares are risky. Well, I wouldn't touch them. And it just went on. And that is what created the monster that I am today, the pushback.
0: For some context, do you mind me asking when that was? I came back in 88. At that time, is it possible that for a lot of people off the back of the 70s, inflation was still on the mind, term deposits were pretty healthy, shares would have looked quite risky, do you think?
1: Yes, they were. And I mean, there's another story now I mean, the, the economists and, and the government have just destroyed the whole system with this cut. these cuts in interest rates. That doesn't solve any problems at all.
0: That leads us really nicely into a discussion about your investing philosophy today, because it's very much based in income producing assets, which is a bit antithetical to everyone's obsession with growth assets. So tell me in your own words, how would you describe your investing philosophy?
1: My investing philosophy is to buy companies who are productive and produce a growing income stream. It's funny, Alex, because there's another element to this. And when, when people talk about income, they are looking at the yield. So they want the highest yield. So when interest rates were at 14, 15% and shares were yielding four or 5%, the preference was particularly for retirees, tragically, they would chase term deposits with high interest rates sucked in by the high yield and totally ignore shares. The crazy flip side of that, I guess. As an example, CSL, the yield is about 1%. The reason it's 1% is because CSL, the share price and the dividends go like that.
0: For anyone at home... What Peter is indicating is that the share price and dividends are going up.
1: They're rising together very steeply. They're rising very steeply. And the reason the yield is low is because people will pay a premium to buy an income stream that's growing like crazy. And what's another one? Cochlear. I was a shareholder in Pacific Dunlop way back when, and they incubated Cochlear as a startup when it was profitable, they floated it. As a result of that, I ended up getting an option to buy. So I bought Cochlear at $2.50. I don't know, what are they now, $200 or something ridiculous? The yield was low. The consequence of that is people turned their back. Yield is a abstract number derived from dividing the income by the value of the asset. Very arbitrary because the abstract yield is hostage to movement in either one or both of those numbers, income and share price. So, for example, if the dividend remains stable and the share price falls, the yield goes up and vice versa.
0: You talked about buying individual companies your first shares, but when I think of you, I think of listed investment companies because you're so famous for advocating for them. I want to talk a little bit about what attracts you to them.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the definition of the listed investment company. A listed investment company is like any other company listed on the stock exchange. So Coles and Woolworths run supermarkets. A listed investment company simply goes and buys shares in Coles, Woolworths, the banks, and other shares, but they are a company and therefore have all the benefits associated with being a listed public company. And I like Licks because They can take away all the effort that one tries to put in and upwards of maybe five or six years ago, I probably had around 52 direct shareholdings, including listed investment companies. I am now down to 22 and shrinking. I'm getting rid of the direct shareholdings and I am just putting it into the listed investment companies with the aim of having all of it in the listed investment companies. And Alex, the reason for that is quite simple. I have better things to do with my time.
0: I find it really interesting that people want to have a brokerage on the side, but then want to actually act like it's their full-time job. And honestly, I want to invest and set and forget because anything else sounds so exhausting.
1: Totally. I cannot imagine why anyone would want to sit in front of a bloody computer churning through the stock exchange every day. They're speculating. As an investor, I've invested in, I don't know, 350 Australian companies as a result of the exposure, the underlying exposure of the listed investment companies. They do all the hard work and I enjoy my beautiful wife, my five gorgeous granddaughters, and we have better things to do.
0: But I really want to drill down into the differences and the relative benefits and cons of licks and ETFs because they do have some interesting differences and I think that ETFs are perhaps more popular at the moment and that maybe some people might not truly appreciate the differences between them.
1: Okay. Listed investment companies have been around for centuries. Like any company, they're a proven model. They run a business just like any other company and they provide the dividend stream, the management, they do all the work and deliver the goods to the investors in that company. ETFs, exchange traded funds, are the old managed investments that I've fiddled around with for decades, where a fund manager, whether it was BT, whether it was Rothschilds, whether it was MLC, they ran managed funds or trusts. Now there's one fundamental difference between a trust and a company a trust as a an entity if it has any profits during the year it must distribute 100% of those profits at the end of the year a company for example is profitable its payout ratio might be 60-70% the balance of retained profits the company holds on its balance sheet it uses it for acquisition new technology etc cetera, etc cetera. a trust cannot do that the trust has to distribute 100% of its returns. And that has huge implications. There was an article that fascinated me, the Vanguard hedged ETF and the iShares S&P 500. So one Vanguard MSCI, Morgan Stanley Capital International World Index is one. That was the Vanguard fund. The iShares was S&P 500 US index hedged ETF. And it was interesting because if I can just read, despite a stellar performance by both funds last financial year, on the last day of the financial year, the Vanguard fund fell 7% and the iShares fund fell 17.5%. This was caused by large payouts as the hedging profits had to be distributed as dividends and were taxable. So you effectively, the iShares fund, you got 18% of your capital returned to you, you paid tax on it, and the value of your portfolio fell by 18%. Now, that is just plain nuts. But I'm aware of that, but other people aren't because ETFs sound different to the old managed funds, don't they? They are dressed up as being super sexy and blah, blah, blah. They are old-fashioned crap. Let me give you another example. Working in the industry, I was an investor in these managed funds until I thought this is absolutely stupid and got out of the industry. So here's some of the transactions. I invested $50,000 in 2001. I was getting quarterly dividends. So the quarterly dividends were running $3,300, $4,600, $9,900, $4,600, $11,500, $5,200, 17,800 as a quarterly dividend. Then it fell back 6,000, 8,000, 1,000, 1,000, 1,000.
0: So I suppose you could say that the relative instability to you is a detractor.
1: Correct, Alex. And secondly, I put in 50,000 in 2001. When I finally ditched the damn things, I received 51,469. My capital growth was 1,469. The income that they paid me over the period from 2001 to 2012 totaled $90,000. Most of it was my capital coming back and every bit of it was taxable. I wouldn't touch an ETF with a barge pole.
0: So I suppose to sum up, the two takeaways from you on their relative differences are the instability of the income and the fact that ETFs as a trust can't distribute a fully franked dividend.
1: Well, they can distribute a frank profit, but with companies, they can retain part of their profits. And if there is a a big realized capital gain because they sell some of the shares, they just turn around and reinvest it for existing shareholders. There are absolutely zero tax consequences for the investor.
0: I want to talk a little bit about scaling wealth because I have around $100,000 invested and for me the next goal is 200 and then financial independence. And it's very it's not a topic I think people talk about it as much especially when, you know, you have perhaps a good income, you started investing, how do you turn that into financial independence? How do you use leverage to your benefit? So I want to talk about how you started and your thoughts on who the right investor might be to utilize leverage in their investments. Because honestly, no one talks about leverage in even the traditional sense of a margin loan.
1: Yeah, which just makes me laugh. Because to be honest, started at an early age. I got a job when I was little, delivering newspapers 60 years ago or something silly. And I saved. And the principle that I espouse is spend less than you earn, borrow less than you can afford. And if you can just do that alone, you're already on your way to financial security. Now, you can improve that by investing in productive assets that produce a regular income and then utilizing that income. And it never ceases to amaze me People love negatively gearing property because it's a way to lose money. So you don't have to pay tax on it. Yeah. And the number of times I've had people say to me, Oh, why, why, why do you borrow money to buy shares? Because the dividends don't cover the interest. I said, Oh, I'm negatively gearing shares. Oh, well, they just never ever considered that what's okay, huge gearing into a property. And if I gear not hugely, honestly, into the share market, They seem to think that if it doesn't, if the dividends don't cover the interest, it's, I'm being silly. It just knocks my socks off. There's a couple of really, I guess, clever things that to me, as I said, you know, I failed my last year at high school, so I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but they're common sense. So, for example, when we returned from overseas and ended up buying our first house in Melbourne, I had a reasonable deposit, so I had a margin. So I borrowed part of the margin left there and invested it in shares. The dividends from the shares I used as additional capital repayments of my mortgage, which is not tax deductible. My investment loan is fully tax deductible. So the dividends were additional capital repayments over and above my mortgage repayments, which meant my mortgage was going down a little bit faster which meant I could increase my investment loan, which is fully tax deductible, to buy more shares, which paid even more dividends. So I had a double whammy. The dividends themselves were growing organically. And because I was buying more shares, my dividend income was accelerating, which meant that my mortgage was disappearing very, very rapidly. And it was a compounding effect effectively I was reinvesting, I bought the shares and I was reinvesting the dividends, but I recycled them through the mortgage to get rid of it and increased the fully tax-deductible loan. I managed to get this message through to my three sons, thank goodness. The eldest son, when they bought their first house, they bought a modest house that they could afford. And if I could be very naughty and show my age, the problem that your generation, Alex, has is is that they want everything today that it took my wife and I a lifetime to achieve and you can't have it.
0: I, I do think though, Peter, that my generation, and I feel for them because I'm in this position myself, we're told you can be anything you want to be and everything will come easier to you than it did to your parents because you are supposed to be the inheritors of progress. And so I think that there are some truths to that. We are aspiring to homes that are less fancy and further away from the CBD and more expensive when you debt to income ratio it than our parents' generation, we feel like we're starting a cut below where our parents started. So I take your point. I do think there is a little bit of instant gratification, but people say that their parents grew up in a leafy suburb and now you're expecting me to live 60 kilometers away and commute two hours it feels like we're moving backwards.
1: I can understand that. And bear in mind that your parents and grandparents had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that inflation was driving their house price up. They had nothing to do with it. And how would you feel about taking out a mortgage at 13% and have the mortgage interest rate 18 months later at 16%? Yeah. And do you know how we cope with it? We spent less than we earned, we borrowed less than we could afford, and we managed to pay. And today, people are screaming because mortgage rates are 3 4%. The first house we bought in London, when we realised we weren't coming home, I surrendered my life insurance policies in Australia, managed to raise a modest deposit, bought our first terraced house in Clapham for £17,000 or something, wondered how the hell we were going to pay this off. We slept on a mattress on the floor and we had sheets pinned up over the windows to, uh, to keep the light out and slowly but surely and painfully we made our way. Our lifestyles were nothing like yours. We hardly, we never dined out. We took no holidays. We had no car. That's how we coped slowly, slowly you work your way through.
0: So, I want to switch gears because we're looking at a recession year and it might be for some investors the first time they're going to be facing into a recession as investors. And they're normal in market cycles and you've experienced a few and invested through a few. So, I think the question I have for you is having been through and invested through multiple market conditions, what would you tell your sons or young investors even that experiencing their first market correction, what would you tell them to do?
1: Get on with life. Your family, your career and your friends are where your focus should be 100%. What's sitting in the background is your investment portfolio quietly chugging along. Now, you know, 1987 crash, the global financial crisis, the dot-com boom and bust, all of that is just jolly good fun. Because if you look at the graph of any stock market in the world, it is as jagged as all get out. And so people can look at the chart and look back and you can pinpoint all these events where the share market tanks and then it recovers and then it tanks again. This is a result of human behavior. We go berserk. I mean, the dot-com boom was a classic example. Remember, you know, they're going to take over the world. None of them were making any money and then the wheels fell off. And hey, presto, the whole thing fell over. And this, unfortunately, the human race never, ever learns. This is why I can predict the future, because looking at the past. So I can tell you, with we're going to have another share market crash. I can't tell you when, but we're going to. And then it will go up again. And then it'll go down again. And then it'll go up again. And this is just going to keep happening. Unless, of course, because people look a bit sceptical, Unless, of course, all companies go bust, you have to go and grow your own food.
0: And I know, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast and generally, that in order for that to happen, every single company in the world would have to be going bankrupt. And if that's the case, It's going to be beans and growing your own victory garden. The least of your worries is going to be your stock portfolio. It is going to be the dark ages if that happens. That's right.
1: They never make the connection. They're going to have to go and trade some of the eggs from their chickens to buy the sheep so they can shear it and get the wool to make clothes. They're going to have to make their own bricks. They're going to go and cut, cut down the trees to saw and make timber so they can build uh, lean to, or a, I mean, the fact that there's no connection between reality and you know their imagination.
0: Because I do think that fear is a dampener of rationality, and when we make decisions that are fearful, they can polarize us and completely exterminate the rational thought. You know, people were worried shops were going to close during the pandemic, so they bought oodles and oodles of toilet paper. That's why I think your advice is really helpful. When you put it into perspective, the advice is keep plugging away. Dollar cost average. Don't do anything rash. Go and hug your family.
1: And remember, fear is based on ignorance. Knowledge is power. If you're scared of something, examine why.
0: I love that. Really prod that anxiety and examine it. So uh, let's let's do a little bit thought experiment for a second. If you were starting from zero and you were my age, so my risk profile and tolerance, how would you invest? Would it would it be different to what you've done thus far?
1: To the way I'm investing now? Absolutely not. I, I wish I had known then what I know now. Looking at, at my three sons, for example, I've managed to capture them way ahead in age of where I was before I the penny finally dropped for me. But what I encourage young people to do when I'm doing presentations and everything is start small, build slowly to get a feel for it, to increase your knowledge and your understanding, to also take a few hits, allow the bruises to heal and just toughen up princess. Everybody wants to get rich quickly and unfortunately that's going to increase the risk element tremendously. What you're buying, you're going to have Forever, so I've encouraged my three sons, particularly, to stick to the listed investment companies because one of the other things I enjoy with them is they often have capital raisings. So they'll have a uh, rights issue, maybe you know one share for every ten shares you have, and they will raise fresh capital for investing further. And they are also able to offer share purchase plans. Now, the rights issues are a bit complicated because they can be large. So the the authorities demand that the listed investment company issues a prospectus to raise. There's a lot of paper. With the share purchase plans, they're restricted of anywhere between $1,000 and $30,000. And there's no prospectus. You just sign the form, pay the money. And I'm delighted to say that a little bit of training over the years none of the boys now come to me and say, oh, Dad, do you think it's the right time to buy? They just buy. And as I try to point out to people, so I'll draw you a mental image, you've got the graph of the stock exchange on the screen in front of you. And it's up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. up, down. But what is the gradient of the up, down, jagged line? The gradient is upwards. So as I point out to people, I can say that I bought at this high point, this low point, high point, low point, high point, low point, high point, low point. You're looking for all the bloody low points. Well, good luck, but get a life. The end result for me is a line that goes right through the middle of the high,
0: low, high, low, high, low, high, low, high, low. So in other words, dollar cost average.
1: Dollar cost average. Just live with the fact that you've bought and congratulate yourself and pat yourself on the back for adding to the pot because that's all you want to do. Just keep adding to the pot and the price movements are largely irrelevant.
0: So at the end of every episode, my favorite part, we do a little bit of a rapid round. And I think I know the answers to these questions. One word answer. You can explain if you like, but let's kick off. So property or stocks? Stocks. Australia or international?
1: Australia because we have some absolutely first class global stocks CSL being one beautiful example Cochlear being another example so just because you're buying overseas doesn't make it any sexier than here
0: Okay active or passive
1: I prefer active management because I don't want resources dragging my result backwards just to give you a handle on that if I invested back in 1980, in industrials, the All Ordinaries Index and the Resources Index, and I reinvested all the dividends, the end result would be, with resources, with dividends, I would have 43 times my money. The All Ordinaries Index, I would have 85 times my money. If I invested in industrials only, I would have 168 times my money. Therefore, I do not invest in resource companies. And if you had invested in listed property trusts, you would have only 67 times your money. So I don't touch any of the rubbish. I get the lead out of the saddlebags. I only buy industrials.
0: Oh my goodness. That stat may genuinely be the antidote, but I didn't realize that they're not making that much money. No, they're not.
1: Has anyone ever thought, why do Stockland, Meriton, Mervac, LendLease sell you residential property? If it's the best investment in the world, why don't the companies build it and keep it? Because the company, the property company staff know that owning property is a complete waste of time, so they sell it to all these lunatics who love it and lap it up. Uh
0: change of pace, buy your home or rent your home? Okay. We live
1: in Australia, so the answer, tragically, is buy it. If I was in any European country or most overseas countries where residential leaseholds are 99 years, you have absolute security and tenure. In this godforsaken country, you're at the whim of a, a, well, a landlord. I wouldn't call him a landlord. A property speculator. They wouldn't know what being a landlord was if they were given a book. In Europe, you have the long-term leaseholds. Grosvenor Estates has owned most of Mayfair, Belgravia, Knightsbridge, and St. John's Wood for a couple of hundred years. If you wanted to move in, someone who had a uh, a a 56-year lease left, you could obtain the lease when you buy into the apartment. But you have security of tenure. No one in this country has security of tenure. My three sons, I haven't actually counted, but as they grew up and moved out of home, the number of times they were turfed out of properties by bastard speculators made me a little annoyed.
0: That's really fair. I think the rent versus buy argument is a little bit too binary because renters should still be investing in something the way homeowners invest in their homes. But uh, Thank you so much for joining us today on Big Swinging Stocks, Peter. If people want a little bit more Peter Thornhill and they want to pick your brain, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: Well, the website's the spot. Uh, You've got my newsletter, Infrequent. I don't write a weekly, monthly newsletter. I only write when I've got something to say. Writing to a timetable, I end up writing rubbish.
0: Well, there you go, folks. You can sign up to the letter and hang out uh, anxiously anticipating the next time Peter Thornhill has something he feels like he needs to say. And I'll be looking forward to it as well. For all our listeners, thanks for joining us this week on Big Swinging Stocks. We'll see you soon.